Hello and welcome to episode number 170 of Turkey Book Talk. Many thanks for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Amy Marie Spangler. She is director of the Istanbul-based Anatolia Lit Literary Agency and previously appeared on the podcast in July 2018 to discuss the writer Sevgi Soysal and her 1973 novel, Noontime in Yenishehir. In this episode, however, we're discussing the life and work of Leila Erbil. That's because Amy has just published a new English edition of Leila Erbil's 1971 novel, A Strange Woman, published by Deep Vellum, building on an original translation by Nermin Menemengiolu, as we'll discuss in the interview. Before we get going, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, so follow us on all those. You can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Amy Marie Spangler. A Strange Woman is a sophisticated work weaving together the story of a young woman entering adulthood in Istanbul of the 1960s and 70s with vignettes from contemporary Turkish history and ruminations about class divides and the ambiguous position of intellectuals in society. But before we got stuck into the book's themes and the broader work of Leda Erbil, I started by asking Amy how and why she came to translate this particular Leyla Erbil novel. Well, I've I've been representing Leila Arbil since 2011. So as her, you know, literary agent, I was trying to find a publisher for her work for a very long time. I've just been a fan and admirer during that time. So there's the professional and the personal aspects that come together. Yeah, when I finally found, you know, a publisher in Deep Vellum, and obviously I'm not the only uh, translator of this book, so you see that it's it's Narmin Minimenjolo and Amy Marie Spangler. And how that happened is, you know, Narmin Minimenjolo is actually a pretty 
pretty prominent translator in her own right, especially of Turkish poetry, who lived in London and was corresponding with a young Leila Erbil in the in the early 70s and decided that she wanted to translate this novel and try and find a publisher for it in London. And that's what she did. We have the letters, several letters that Nami Menemenjola wrote to Leila Erbil during this time. Sadly, we do not have the responses from Leila Erbil. It's quite interesting to to read that and see the dynamics between those two, because in that case, of course, it was a very young Leila Erbil who had just, you know, she'd had two short story collections published. This was her first novel. And then you've got this, you know, older, more prominent translator. And to see the dynamics between the two of them, when then 50 years later, you've got an author who's now kind of become canon, right? Leila Erbil, and then me, <laughs> the kind of a no-name translator working on, on her stuff as well. And just, it's, it, it's quite fascinating. One might ask then, well, why why is my name on this book? And it's not just Nami Minimanjolu's translation. So with the Nami Minimanjolu's translation, I was asked to, to edit it. And when I started doing that, the more I did it, the more I started interfering in it, frankly, for several reasons. I mean, one being that Leila Arbil actually did change the book over time. So she would add, as she states in her prefaces for each edition, she would add stuff about Mustafa Supi if it was found. And she did make some kind of less radical but different changes to it. So it was interesting that, you know, comparing the two would be like, there's something in the English that's not in the Turkish and you go back and see that it was actually in a 1970, you know, in the 1971 edition, but she'd taken it out in the meantime. And I think we wanted it to be the, the final edition that, that she had published. And unfortunately, Leila Arbil had passed away by the time all of this happened. And also, there's also the issue of how radical, she, you kind of see the beginnings of how radical she will become as a writer and as a stylist in this novel, but obviously that had not borne fruit yet. And so in a way, Nami Menemenjola was really kind of domesticating her text, not only in, in the straightforward way that we refer to that in translation studies, but also, you know, stylistically taming them down, let's say, whereas I thought reinserting those markers for what was to come was also very important. So I basically then, and then we said, well, you know, we'll, we'll put my name on as a co-translator. Maybe some people will also just find awful what's been done to this text and I should take the blame for it. So that was a very long explanation of how I became involved in this <laughs> translation. So that translation was done pretty much after publication, but it wasn't published, I don't think, at the time, that English translation. Uh, is this, therefore, the first Leila Abil novel to appear in English, this version, this edition? Yes, it is. Yes. She's had a couple of short stories, also translated by Nermin Menemenjola, that were published in English before. And also, it's interesting, Nermin sent some of the correspondence that she got from UK publishers to Leila Arbi, so we can we, we have access to those, which is interesting, these kind of very gentle rejections. So we know that, you know, she was actively trying to find a publisher, but she just couldn't at the time. Yeah, it seems extraordinary that she hasn't been published because, you know, she's now seen in Turkey as one of the most significant Turkish authors of the 20th century. So the fact that she's not appeared in English before is quite a surprise, perhaps. Yeah, it's true. But I will say, I mean, you know, one thing about the the current moment is that, you know, modern classics in general, international modern classics in general, I think are, a lot of them are just starting to appear in English or just starting to get the attention that they deserve. You know, I, I was on here before talking about a translation I did of Sevgi Soysal's novel, Noontime in Yenishir, which was published by a very small and obscure press, actually, Milet. So it didn't get a lot of exposure. But, you know, it's this year also Maureen Freely's translation of Sevgi Soysal's Shafa 
Fuck. So it will be published as Dawn by Archipelago Books. And Save You Soy saw another major author, obviously, the 20th century. You know, Ulzatai is going to be published in English for the first time by New York Review of Books, hopefully next year. I think there's Feri Tedgu's coming out. So it's a lot. It's kind of it's kind of this hot moment, I think, internationally for modern classics. And um, in the case of Turkish modern classics, yeah, it's, it's a nice moment. It's only been really in the past 10 years even that we've seen, you know, Tom Pinar, Said Faik, a lot of these major names coming out in English. So it's kind of not surprising in that way, I would say. So before we come to the novel itself, just to introduce Lady Rabil to us, you know, what was her biography and at what point in her writing career did she produce A Strange Woman? Right. Well, Leila Arbi was born in 1931 in Istanbul. She had a pretty, you know, solid, I would say, upper middle class upbringing. She got married at one point, moved to Izmir, lived there for a while, had had one daughter and held several different jobs when she was younger. And then, yeah, I mean, eventually became pretty much, I guess, a full time writer. As I mentioned earlier, you know, she had two collections of short stories that were published before A Strange Woman. So A Strange Woman is her first novel. And it's interesting because, well, A Strange Woman is described as an autobiographical novel. And you can really see, you know, the first section in particular, which is the journal of a young woman, is is very much about Leila Arbil, or, or a figure very much like Leila Arbil, let's say, trying to break into the literary circles in Istanbul. And so I think that gives us, you know, a lot of clues as to how she was and how, how, how she became who she was. The first bit is, is it's a nice bait to get people interested. There are also a lot of actually very prominent literary figures who were referred to by other names in that section. So, yeah, and like I was saying earlier, too, you know, she was very, well, she was, she's been very experimental, I think, you know, stylistically from the beginning. So the short stories as well. And then this novel, and she becomes, you know, more and more experimental. And for the number of years she was writing, it's not, you know, she didn't publish dozens of books. She published actually a pretty limited number of books, given the amount of time we're talking about. But, you know, she really tried to do something very different every time. I think she really puts herself into the books. She was kind of criticized as a, as a leftist and a Marxist for being so keen on reading Freud and, you know, <laughs> being in this kind of Freudian and Jungian psychology and, and really involving that in her literature. But she also became famous for it. So she's kind of the first author here to, to bring these elements together. So she had a very keen view on class issues and society in that respect. But she, she was very engaged in trying to understand human psyche, the human psyche. And I think she really opened herself up a lot. So even though, you know, we're talking about novels and short stories, so we're talking about fiction, there's a lot of Leila Arbil in those that I think comes through in, in the case of A Strange Woman as well. Very much so. The Narmin character who's in the first, well, who's throughout the book is very much, I would say, a dimension of Leila Arbil herself, for certain. And the novel stirred considerable controversy when it was published in 1971. Why was that? You know, she's talks quite frankly in the novel about, I mean, mostly it's, the, I think, the sexual issues. There's a discussion of, of incest in the novel and just also the way I think the protagonist and a close friend of hers in the novel really confront these male figures. And really, are they're just kind of, in a way, airing some of their dirty laundry. I mean, she's saying this stuff happens. And I think it really galled the people who didn't want to didn't want to have that revealed so much. But uh, yeah, the sexual frankness of it was really what was most controversial. So you say there that the character Nermin has pretty strong biographical or autobiographical elements. And uh, in the introduction, actually, you write, 
quote, the most important projection of Leila Erbil onto the page in A Strange Woman is that of her conflicted self. Erbil wrote unsettling texts about unsettled people embodying all manner of contradictions because she recognised the complexity of the self in her own self and in others. Yet while plumbing the depths of their psyches, she also cast an eye on the social and political forces that shape her characters. So there, you're essentially arguing that the biographical element isn't just focused on the character of Nermin, but kind of infused within the text itself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the brilliance, really, of, of Leila Abil. And I think, so there's obviously the, the social milieu here and the political and economic context even is definitely there. But the way that she, she also pulls in these psychological elements and the complexity of it, like I was saying, I think as a person as well, she didn't avoid contradiction, you know, and she really grappled with it. And I think it, I completely commend how she's done that in this novel, even, you know, the how we have this Naramin in the first section and then look at Naramin in the last section. I mean, it's pretty condemning in a way. <laughs> and that's because of these contradictions that she embodies. But yeah, what I wrote there sounded pretty good to me. I think I stand behind it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in that first section, uh, she's this younger pretty impressionable aspiring writer in Istanbul she's trying to make a name for herself as a poet and it really vividly depicts this intellectual world that's dominated by male egos fragile male egos and really we get this parade of annoying overbearing male characters basically telling her and telling others what to think it's still quite a realistic and recognizable personality type I think uh, to be honest yeah, no, sad. I mean, yeah, and sadly, I think that so much has not changed. You know, I probably should have made some reference to Me Too or something, <laughs> even in the introduction. I mean, you can see these these men who are basically, you know, gossiping about her, and there's definitely, you know, sexuality. There's is a form of capital. You know, you can totally read it as that's a way to get into these these literary circles or be abused by them with the promise of kind of opening doors, right? Which is, yeah, sad and also not completely behind us by any means and then the final section of the book is the same character Nermin but many years later when she essentially is part of this aspiring movement on the left to basically go to the urban periphery the kind of Gejikondu slum neighborhoods and to basically educate the poor into leftist ideology you know this was quite a recognizable trope at the time in the 60s 70s and you know they were part of it she was married in the book and then she moves there with her husband and basically sees herself as having this mission this social mission and uh, you write in the introduction that Nermin is the embodiment of the liberal educated elite unable to comprehend why so many of the downtrodden fail to rise up why they act it would seem in blatant contradiction to the interests of their own class what does it mean when one simultaneously infantilizes and exalts the other is it possible to wag your finger and applaud at the same time and I think some of those themes are quite interesting because you get the same kind of debate happening actually these days, I think. So it's interesting to note that these themes, which are still powerful today in a lot of different contexts, not just Turkey, are actually quite timeless, really. They had the resonance even back in the early 1970s when that is generally seen today as a kind of golden era for the left in Turkey. But it was still riven by these debates about the real people and going to the people and educating the people as an elite group it really did resonate in that way 
Yeah, no, absolutely. When doing the last section too, I just, it's the same thing happening right now, as you say. I mean, you think about in the AKP and also in the book, you know, the neighborhoods he goes to, they're quite, you know, religiously pious and that, that also plays a role. And yeah, or I mean, you know, coming from the U.S., seeing seeing who votes for Trump and just seeing a lot of people acting complete contradiction to what, what appears to us to be their best interests. So, yeah, but I think, I, I think what Leila Arbi does there that's, is just especially a student of hers is, I think, even in observing the Narmin character, she doesn't make things black and white. She obviously does not, you know, she doesn't romanticize either side. And that's exactly what I what I meant when I referred to her not avoiding complexity. I mean, we're still seeing things primarily from Narmin's perspective. So, of course, you know, I can't say that we necessarily see the neighbors in all of their in all of their complexity, but we see just how torn she is and how she tries to deal with that and overcome it and fails in so many ways. You know, the final scene with where she's at the ski resort or whatever, and the you know the guy who's serving her. That's you know, it's pretty damning for the Narmin figure, and just very raw and honest though at the same time. And also quite funny because this is basically mm. a, a monologue and obviously a lot of these contradictions are being presented, but a lot of the almost unconscious biases are presented to us in quite an amusing way. It was a quote I noted down mm. where she's talking about her husband not being happy about going to the Skejikondi neighborhood and she says uh, they wouldn't find the place too odd. He should imagine he'd gotten a job with the United Nations and yeah. they'd been assigned, for example, to the Congo. Which kind of illustrates uh, the way that Mm. a certain kind of person viewed the mission that they had essentially in these peripheral neighborhoods of Istanbul. Yeah, yeah. Or even, yeah, no, I think there's definitely some humor in there, you know, or or taking her piano. Even that, I think that scene, you know, of of her moving and putting all her stuff on the truck. Remember, she's so self, she's filled with this self-satisfaction, right? That she's going to do this and her rising and kind of even singing in the back of this truck and (laughs) falling down back on the seat and just, it's interesting because she's so full of herself, right? I don't know. There's definitely a lot of humor or with, with the piano and her gathering all the all the neighborhood kids and and folks around and thinking she's going to make this great impression and yeah it's so and it's so typical i feel like of of turkey and the whole kind of people's republican party mission and which obviously she's not that's not what she is there but i'm thinking about this there's this inherent elitism in the idea that you're going to bring you know the right political attitude and you're going to bring culture to the masses so yeah i think she really reveals that as you say also with with a flair of humor at times too now, a key figure in the book is Mustafa Supi, and he's referred to via the reflections of other characters. Obviously, he's this historical figure who was affiliated basically with the Communist Party during the War of Independence years. And he was killed in pretty murky circumstances, drowned in the Black Sea during those years, the early 1920s. Could you just talk about the role that he plays in this book? You know, who was he, first of all, and what role does he play in the narrative of this novel? Right. Well, I think Mustafa Supi was, you know, first and foremost, you know, an obsession for Leila Abid and as, as part of her obsession with history and, and how history ends up finding its ultimate course and what might have happened if things had gone otherwise. So in this case, she's kind of expressed this through a father on his deathbed. It's a kind of stream of consciousness. He's kind of going in and out of consciousness, really, and awareness. And this name keeps coming up. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, Leila Arbid would would actually add to the novel if new information came out about Mustafa Supi. 
there's a lot of controversy over how and and why he was well one thinks assassinated or was he assassinated it's all it is all very murky but the idea that if he had survived and there might have been you know he had become aligned with Mustafa Kemal Ataturk or whatever and you know Turkey could have been a very different a very different country and then the question of why certain people would want to get rid of him is is a big question mark and obsession of Leila Arbiz so that comes through I don't I don't know how much you need to know about Mustafa Supi I think the main the main drive behind that for me at least in particular is how is is the questioning of what you know what could have been different if if he had survived and also just how how this can be shrouded in mystery for so long and it's still i think to this day it's controversial obviously and obviously the book at the time was written at a time when Mustafa Supi was achieving a almost mythical status among leftist groups, you know, who were seeing in him a, a possible alternative past to uh, almost became a kind of martyred figure in retrospect. So mm. it kind of reflects that <clears throat> interest. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think at the time she wrote it too, you know, people would, people would know who he is. It's interesting now because people read it and they're like, who's Mustafa Supi? I mean, there are several books about him, but unless you're, you know, a good bit about uh, leftist history in Turkey, you may not, even if you're from, from here, you may not know who he is anymore. So which just goes to show, you know, how successful this operation to shove him into obscurity has been maybe. And, and yeah, so it was part of Leila Arbi's mission to make sure that didn't happen in a way. And I think why she she chose to to feature this figure in the novel. I really enjoyed the book, but I do wonder if one of the reasons why I enjoyed the book is because I know a little bit about this historical context. I can place this novel in that particular milieu of the late 60s, early 70s leftist intellectual groups that are being talked about in those sections. And I just wonder, you know, for somebody coming from the outside, how much they would get from it, you know, how universal is the book in that sense, you know, how rewarding essentially do you think this novel would be without knowing some of this context, without knowing some of this history? I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard, you know, for us, I think, maybe to imagine that and re- remove ourselves from or remove what we know from from ourselves in a way. But I don't know. I mean, I think, like I was saying, that's why I, I don't want to obsess too much about the Mustafa Supi bit in the novel, because I think even not knowing necessarily that much about him, you can read that section and just stylistically and in terms, you can read it, you know, and there's a lot then there about the father-daughter relationship. There are a lot of, I mean, there's plenty about it that's actually universal, I think, that it, it should be very readable and engaging for a reader who doesn't necessarily know a lot about leftist politics in Turkey. I think, you know, the thing about the first section... I I don't know. It all, I think the, on the personal level, it's engaging enough that you can get a lot out of it without necessarily knowing, you know, all about the, the Turkish left and 20th century leftist history and whatnot. Um, and like we were saying earlier, you know, some of these themes are quite universal. You know, the young woman trying to break into these literary circles and sexuality as a form of capital and and I think also, especially, I mean, the father-daughter relationship in it, the mother-daughter relationship in it. And in the last section, I mean, it just seems so topical in a way to me, this push and pull between this liberal elite. Like when I was going, doing the, you know, working on the translation, I just thought, it, oh, this is so relevant to today, actually. And and it, I think it says a lot of things through the Namin figure that, that a lot of us who maybe are more closely aligned with that liberal elite than uh, the quote-unquote downtrodden masses maybe don't don't really want to reveal about ourselves or think about too much. So I don't know, but that's, you know, maybe I'm, I'm extremely biased because I just love this book. And the book has quite a sophisticated structure. It's uh, narrated at different points from multiple different perspectives. 
many of which are unreliable. And all that obviously throws up its own challenges for the translator. And uh, I think that challenging structure is most clear really in the second section where Mm -hmm. we see this dying father's mind. We get this monologue from him, fragmented monologue, drifting in and out of awareness of the present, talking about traumas from the past, making these associations with historical figures in the present day. And it's all refracted through his personal history and the history of the country, essentially. It's a very riveting read, but also a very challenging one. And as I understand it, Leila Rabu's writing became more and more complex and challenging as her life went on. So many of these techniques that we're seeing in this book are actually in a nascent stage, essentially. Just wonder if you could talk about that. You know, obviously you were translating this in quite a weird way, you know, from an original text and then redoing it, essentially. Could you just talk about some of the challenges, this challenging structure? What kind of challenges that threw up for you as a translator? Yeah, uh, the second section, stylistically speaking, of course, was definitely the most challenging. I think for the book in general, what I found is, and the reason I ended up becoming so involved is even in the first section, for example, which is, you know, it's a diary of a young woman. It's very straightforward. I felt like Narmi Menemenjuolu was trying to make it even more literary than it is in a way. And I thought Leila Arbi definitely wanted to make it sound like the diary of a young woman. So that was kind of a lot of work I did on that section. And then with the father section, which, as you say, yeah, it's a lot. It's like stream of consciousness. It's a free association. It's also full, full of references to all his. This is a ship captain we're talking about, right? And uh, all this kind of maritime terminology and, you know, history. And yeah, there's just it's just so laden in a way. So you've got all of this information to deal with, but then stylistically, yeah, it's it's a little bit crazy sometimes. And that too was quite smoothed over. And this is also where she starts, it's in this section really that she starts with the, you know, what kind of become trademarks later. I think she would have two periods and then an exclamation mark. And, you know, eventually over time she started using exclamation marks with a, you know, with a comma instead of a period. And she was very well known for using three commas uh, in a row. So as you were saying, I mean, nascent is, is, a, is a good word here to, to describe what, what this text is for what comes later, because she would really, really start doing more of that. And, you know, and we're working. So there are three of us right now working on the translation of Kalan. So What Remains, which Deep Vellum will also publish, and which we've been working on kind of on and off, but now quite regularly for the last year. And it's kind of her crowning achievement. And, and you know, that book is is actually written in a kind of verse. So not rhyming verse, but the, the lines are in verse. And it's so interesting. And people write, obviously, been... Uh, Theses written about this, but just her use of language and how she'll use something that's slightly, it's just familiar enough that you think it exists. And then you realize she's made up a word or she's made up an expression and stuff like that, which we're seeing also kind of the first budding representations of in A Strange Woman. So I think the biggest challenge in general is just, you know, how, because as you were saying, I think in this section in particular is challenging enough for the foreign reader to deal with the the setting and the information and the context. And then if you, if you pile on a lot of stylistic innovation on top of that, 
how inaccessible will it become is kind of a question mark. Because the other thing is because it's translation, you know, I mean, this is Leila Arabi. She can do whatever she wants in Turkish. And now, obviously, over the years, she's really become canon. And so she has that authority. But when it's a translation, and this is a reason I really, I, I insisted on writing a translator's, like a preface, because I wanted to make sure people had the context that I wasn't just making, Nami Minimenjul and I weren't just making mistakes in the translation, that actually <laughs> what what sounded really awkward in some cases was likely very awkward in the Turkish. And this is probably the biggest challenge of translating Leila Arabi, unlike anybody else I've ever translated. So this is a very special challenge to that, as opposed to someone like Sevgi Soysal, for example, tremendous author, also an author I love and admire greatly, but uh, was, you know, a social realist for the most part, and her prose is very straightforward. So you just want to make things flow, and that's the norm. And, and translation now, of course, is this kind of domestication, and just, you know, it should sound like it was written in English or whatever. And if it flows in the Turkish and that's how, then you just make it flow in the English kind of, to put it in extremely simple terms. But when you're working with someone who's a stylistic innovator like Leila Arbi, it becomes kind of dangerous territory. So yeah, it was just a lot of a lot of challenges. Like, do I keep this as a run-on like this, or what do I do with this punctuation, or what? Yeah, it is a lot of a lot of grappling and just hoping that readers would come to it with an open mind and some confidence in the translator. <laughs> let's say. And you met Leila Erbil before she died. Uh, what were the circumstances of that meeting, and uh, how was it as an experience? Yeah, well, I um, Leila Erbil had been represented by a different agency in Turkey, and um, had decided that she wanted to change agencies, and her her publisher recommended us and thought it would be good for us to meet. So I was invited to to go and meet her. And then after that, I actually, you know, went to, to her apartment many times, at least a dozen, dozen, 20 times that we met. And I mean, I will say, you know, I, <laughs> she, she was amazing, a little bit intimidating for sure. But you could t- totally see why so many people were just completely smitten with her as well. I mean, I was I was very taken with her, just very sharp woman and just extremely impressive. Yeah, just this breadth of, of knowledge and also this very kind of piercing. I think everything about it was piercing, the way she looked at you and looked at the world. And you could really feel that she she's a woman who definitely, yeah, plums the depths at all moments. So it was very, yeah, it was a great honor to meet her and spend time with her. Yeah, I'm sad she's not here with us. And I'm really especially sad that, you know, she's not around to see her books published in English and in other languages and, and her finally getting some of, some of at least the exposure she deserves. And you referred to it a bit earlier, but uh, you're also one of the three translators currently working on Leila Rabil's What Remains or Kalan, and that's going to be published by Deep Vellum in due course. Just to conclude, I mean, what can you tell Mm -hmm. us about that book, that project, when it's going to appear? Yeah, well, um, so there's three of us. It's uh, Mark David Wires, Ale Versan, and myself who are translating that book. And people always ask, or how do three people translate one book? And it's a good question. So over time, we, we divide it up, basically, the pages. So each of us does a first draft of different pages. And then the three of us come together, and we've been meeting on you know Google Meet. We use Google Docs and basically spend a short eternity on this text. <laughs> which, as I mentioned earlier, is for the most part in a kind of verse. And 
it was that was next to last book or last book being a strange man which maybe will be a topic for discussion another time but i think what remains yeah for her even was really kind of like i said her magnum opus her crowning achievement and the title i would say you know is very much about what's left from everything we've destroyed in in turkey and in istanbul in a way so yeah, it's also just a very, it's a very, it's a very complex but very rewarding text. I think with Kalan, Leila Arbid really managed to to write something that flows and it really sweeps you, kind of take, you know, sweeps you off your feet in a way. But like I was saying earlier, it's actually when you if you read it more closely, you see all of these tricks and all of these references, and it's just so many layers. And so it's, it's an incredibly rewarding read. It's an incredibly rewarding text to translate, but also very very challenging to. Uh, try and and convey everything that she's doing and it really like i was saying earlier with the with the marxism and the freud and the jung and the the history the obsession with history and also the archaeology of the mind which is very freudian this kind of comparison between the archaeology of the city so the layers of history and the layers of the psyche she does a lot of these kind of parallelisms i think between these yeah, I mean, well, we're supposed to finish by the end of August, so hopefully 2023 it'll come out. It's yeah, it's intense. We work like three four three four mornings a week from eight to ten, and then every weekend for three or four hours we do a day. So it's a lot of work, and that's you know just going over our drafts. So hopefully when it comes out, some people will actually read it too, <laughs> and uh, it'll have been worth our while. That was Amy Marie Spangler. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 170. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to turkey book talks patreon account and pledge three dollars three euros or two pounds fifty per episode you can also support turkey book talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com our twitter facebook or instagram accounts or all of them recommend turkey book talk to a friend or foe and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to william john armstrong at gmail.com Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (music) 